Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. And we are talking about politics. At least that's my focus. Not sure about you, Naomi. We never talk about politics on this show. (laughs) You'll understand what I mean once we get into it. But we are very excited to bring the show to you today. So let's begin with... Oh, actually, hold on. What shows did you look at today, Naomi? So I looked at Face the Nation. I also looked at State of the Union. We also had a little hiccup in that I didn't realize you had looked at Meet the Press and then I did it. And so we both actually looked at Meet the Press. But I'm not talking about Meet the Press, but I... But you will comment on the clips that I have from Meet the Press. Yes. (laughs) Yes, a little miscommunication, but got a little extra Chuck Todd there today. So I took a look (laughs) at Meet the Press, as we noted hosted by chuck todd as usual this week was hosted by martha raditz and fox news sunday was hosted by shannon bream who i don't believe we've seen host before but she did a serviceable job naomi do you have a quality questionable you'd like to highlight this week i do so i have a questionable it's kind of like a throwback questionable because i'm pretty sure this same as that questionable occurred a year ago by you, Brendan. And it is a focus group on Face the Nation. It's a focus group of people on how they're thinking and feeling about the Biden administration Uh and COVID. And listen, I've been thinking a lot about this. I know we say that the shows need to talk to voters and talk to other kinds of experts and people with lived experience. Yes. And I stand by that. Yes. And there's no but to that sentence. There is a small one. So I stand by that. And I think there are shows who do that well. This week goes on the road. Put Martha Raddatz on a van. She'll get some great interviews, (laughs) you know, and she lives out of a van. (laughs) Martha Raddatz does not live outside of a van. No, she does not. (laughs) She's too classy of a lady. But she could if she had to. If she could. In a war zone. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so. You know, there's a whole thing on YouTube of people like living in their vans. It's like a whole There's a whole thing on everything on YouTube. Yes. Continue. So, so I say this all to underscore that I think there's a way to do it well, to talk to voters, to talk to people about what they're experiencing, what should be done, you know, what doesn't, you know, the government or federal government get about their, their experience. But that's not what this was. No sorry, Bob. Face the Nation did a focus group with the same exact people they talked to a year ago to see how they're feeling about the current state of everything. And it was bad. Take a listen to one clip here with so much, I don't know, you know, like that emoji where the head's exploding. Like that's the emoji I feel when I hear this. Flames. (laughs) It's not quite so much flames like (laughs) Mrs. White on Clue. Which, if anyone knows me, that's like 40% of my personality. Yes. But 
<laughs> but take us into this clip. And you might understand why. I do. I, because there's so much more that needs to be done. Like what? What do you need? Um, I need for the price of bacon to go down. <laughs> How about that? I need for the government to stop spending so much money on um, things that are worthless. That like are what? Gonna, that are not going to benefit the people. I mean, they're sending out uh, N95 masses, you know, to cover people's faces. Somebody's making it and somebody's making money off of that. You know, I, you know, that to me, that's crazy. They're also sending out COVID tests mm -hmm. um, for people to do COVID testing at home. Waste of money. The administration would say these are the things that will help keep the economy going because then you won't have to stay home if you don't catch COVID. It takes 12 days to get the test in the mail, another 12 days to get your results. That's 24 days. <laughs> well, these at-home tests are supposed to be quick, just a few minutes. Oh my gosh. Why would you highlight these clips? Like, these aren't happening live, are they? Are these conversations happening live? No, because they're going to be using these this focus group and a couple other segments or so a couple other shows. Why would you highlight this? This is just like a snippet of the conversation that was like, general WTF type commentary and like, okay, I don't want to be judgy. Maybe people feel this way. And I know focus groups are not to like explain, they're for listening. I get how like qualitative data works, but like all of this is not helpful to hear if you are confused about COVID response. Everybody Martha or Margaret Brennan has talked to has talked about a need for more rapid tests so people can return to school or return to work yeah. as quickly as possible. Everyone who's not in this focus group. Right. Yes, to be clear. <laughs> right. You know, everyone's talked about we need high quality masks because cloth masks are, you know, like, it's just so many things that you're just like, uh, can we have like a one-on-one of like, these are the facts you actually need to stay safe after the focus group is over, like a disclaimer screen. Like, yeah. it, it's just... Uh, what it, are they doing? It's so painful. Like, clearly people are very confused about the pandemic still two years in, which is a reflection on the bad federal public health messaging. Yes. I, I Absolutely. But the point of the focus group is that the federal government is bad at doing their job, which should be that COVID is not that serious. Not like the federal government is being really bad at their job at messaging. It's just, yeah, it was, it was very painful. And I just... This is not what I mean when I say, like, we need to hear from voters directly. Like, you need to package it and shape it in a way that is, like, constructive for the viewer as well. There are so many problems with just this one minute and five seconds that we just heard here. If this was not live, there is no excuse why the editorial team of Face the Nation thought that this was a highlight worth sharing and platforming to their audience of millions of people. There is no reason for that. There is no value received from what we just heard here, except for if you could possibly personally listen to this and summarize it as people don't understand the right COVID messaging. But this is where you shouldn't have platformed that anyway. What you should have done is you should have consolidated all of your findings. You should have done the work. I've run focus groups. You should have done the work of summarizing and consolidating 
and synthesizing what you learned so that you can present it as meaningful data. This is not meaningful. This is, this is just a, a handful of voices that are wrong. And why would you want to highlight, if this is something that you want to like put out there for everyone to hear, why would you highlight that totally useless follow-up question from Margaret Brennan, which is, what are they spending it on that's not worth it? She asks, right? But what, it, how is this person qualified to know the federal government's budget? They're not qualified to know that. What they know is what they want, what they need. So the proper question is, what should the federal government, or, in your estimation, be spending money on to help you, regular citizen? Don't say, oh, well, I can't believe they spend money on, you know, I mean, she could have said anything. She could have said, oh, you know, they're putting money into putting soda in front of the post office. They're resodding the post office where I live. Well, that's a waste of money because you should just put rocks in. Rocks are a lot cheaper. You don't have to water it. And if someone's making money on that sod, I mean, that's useless information. The information that matters is how should the government be spending money to help you? Or on the flip side, saying... What taxes do you think you're paying that you should not be paying anymore, right? If you want to get to like the, oh, we're paying for things we shouldn't be paying for. But this is just, oh my gosh. It's so, it's not the way you should be doing a focus group on the Sunday shows, period. Or presenting the results of a focus group to anybody ever, even if you're not on a Sunday show. This is a very, very bad use of focus groups. Very bad. Right. And I think the synthesizing, it's like hearing from people directly versus synthesizing and presenting data are two very different skill sets and have different objectives, right? Yeah. And Anthony Salvanto often comes on the show and gives a summary of, you know, data that they've, surveys they've done recently. He's like the head of polling at CBS News. Yes. And that's one way to do it. Yeah, and he's exactly the person I was thinking of. He right. could have summarized this information really well. I heard his voice in my head right, saying, me too. some people are out there and they don't even have a full understanding right, 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 of right. what the value of these things are. But they chose not to do that. They chose to have Margaret Brennan lead this focus group, which leads me to believe that it's supposed to be kind of more conversational, more hearing from people directly. But you have to frame it as to like... How what they're actually experiencing and how they're making their choices and what they would want, as opposed to kind of like you're saying, making declarations of things that they're not necessarily experts on or they may not, they might not necessarily have all the information to kind of give valid responses. And if they don't, like, that's fine. These are like average, like some, like somebody was like a teacher, like you shouldn't necessarily be expected to know like the federal budgeting of things, but frame your questions appropriately right yes. and so that's also missing so it's just like what is your goal for having these people here what are your goals with your questions like all of it is off at every point and it's just like completely cringeworthy brendan did do you have a quality or questionable yeah so this was really interesting so we have done polylog for years and years and years now can't keep uh, track of when it started no one knows, actually. It's just keeps it was going. July 2017. <laughs> but anyway, keep going. I remember when we went out uh, to Washington, D.C., and we spoke with Chuck Todd. And if you look at the reviews for Meet the Press uh, in their podcast, the podcast version of Meet the Press, you will notice that there's a lot of people who aren't too happy with Chuck Todd and don't like Chuck Todd. And I feel like Chuck Todd can sometimes be kind of the punching bag for all political journalists out there. 
that's unfortunate <laughs> that people treat him that way. But there are people who truly get frustrated with his particular brand of political coverage. And from our interview with him, and you can go back and listen to that episode if you'd like, we can totally say he's very engaged, very thoughtful about what he does, he and the whole team over there. And we have a lot of respect for what they do. But that said, here is an example, I feel like, of what I think sometimes drives people crazy about Chuck Todd and the coverage that he provides on Meet the Press. So take a listen. This is just a a brief clip, a brief item that he brought up in the panel today on Meet the Press. You'll hear him bring it up, and then you'll hear kind of his response. Now, he's going to be presenting this information to Peter Baker of the New York Times. We're not going to hear what Peter Baker says. We're just going to hear what Chuck Todd says. Here we go. I want to bring up a quick troubling uh, number that we had in our poll. 76%, three in four of everybody we surveyed, said that our democracy is under threat. But look at the differences of why among Republicans. And by the way, it's basically even among Republicans and Democrats agreeing with this statement now. Uh, Republicans say it's because of Democrats and liberals and it's the socialism and they're going too far to the left. Not really. You don't see the election fraud even come up in a lot here. Democrats basically agree on one reason why they think the democracy is under threat. It is Donald Trump. But this is, Peter Baker, a pretty concerning overall. The, the rationales may not matter. Mm-hmm. If everybody agrees that our democracy is crumbling, it's a bit scary, especially because it isn't for the same reasons. Right. And that's what makes it even harder. So what struck me here was the tremendous contrast between this conversation about our democracy under threat and what we heard from Jake Tapper at the end of his episode a few weeks ago. I'm going to just go ahead and play that again for you. And hold on, just to be clear, this wasn't a few weeks ago. This was literally last week. Here's Jake Tapper's closing, part part of it. Senator Rubio is correct. Our government was not almost overthrown by a guy wearing a Viking hat and Speedos. It was almost overthrown by armed, violent extremists, 11 of whom have now been charged with seditious conspiracy, and by others in the Trump administration and in positions of power throughout the country seeking to invalidate election results based on the wild lies of an unhinged team of conspiracy theories, and by MAGA media that spread those lies, and by more than 140 House and Senate Republicans who voted to disenfranchise all the voters of Arizona and Pennsylvania. And make no mistake, the conspiracy could have worked, and it might work next time. Pay attention to who they're lining up to count the votes. And on this Martin Luther King Day weekend, think about whose votes they don't want to count. So also talking about democracy under threat, but a very different take on that issue. Jake Tapper sees a genuine threat backed up by mounting evidence that the January 6th committee keeps uncovering that we saw on television happening live last year. Good times. Yes. And that was, again, supported by 140 members of Congress. Chuck Todd sees a poll number and says, look, Republicans feel this way and Democrats feel this way. And really, as he says, quote, the rationales may not matter if everybody agrees that our democracy is crumbling, end quote. What? Are are you out of your mind? These two things are not the same. It should be crystal clear that the democracy is under threat, as Jake Tapper said, And that if we want to talk about democracy under threat, we should talk about the real and present danger that it is actually under threat by. 
that resulted in actual bloodshed one year ago and that is being literally at this moment planned for and talked about by the same people who are most of them not behind bars because they weren't actually there. They were ginning up the crowd and getting people excited and backing this stuff up with random legalese that we see like PowerPoint presentations of being uncovered. So this is an example of that, some might say both ciderism that drives people crazy about some political coverage, but also just the sense that Chuck Todd brings to the conversation that it actually doesn't matter, right? That the reasons and the facts don't matter. What matter is the sentiment. And there's this sentiment on both sides that he says here in this polling that the democracy is crumbling and that's the problem. The problem is the sentiment and not the facts. And I think that drives people crazy. Here's one more example of that. Welcome back, data download time. For almost two years now, the pandemic has brought confusion and uncertainty into Americans' lives, forcing them to make daily decisions about who and what to trust for information about the virus. Well, our latest NBC News polls asked a simple question. Do you trust what a certain person or group has said about the virus? As you can see, a majority of Democrats and a majority of Republicans trust their employer when it comes for coronavirus information, a little less so with independents. But to show you how the political side of things has gotten the CDC's trust problem, it's not good at 44%, still good with Democrats. But look at this, below 40% with independents and below 25% with Republicans. It really has at least polarized or politicized the CDC. And as you can see, that's led to a lot of problems, which is why it's employers and schools that parents and individuals have had to turn to because they don't trust the government these days. So very relevant. We were literally just talking about this last week about who people trust, who are their sources of information on the coronavirus and on COVID-19 and the pandemic. But look at what Chuck Todd does here. He couches all of the critical trust issues of the CDC within a political partisan polarization lens, as if that's what's behind the low trust levels in the CDC. And not, I don't know, the facts of the matter that the CDC has done a horrendous job at public health messaging throughout this crisis under both administrations, as we've documented and has been documented for years, right? Like, the whole conversation is about political polarization, as if that is the cause. But that is not the cause. That might have some effect on these trust levels. But I don't know anybody who thinks the CDC is doing a, a, a wonderful job with messaging on any side of the political aisle. So to assume that the trust level and to say the trust level is all just about partisanship and polarization and politicization, that is not true. And it's obscuring the truth to see it through that lens. And I think, again, this is a part of this tendency of Chuck Todd's and the team at Beat the Press to boil it all down and to say that partisanship and politicization and sentiment of the voter is more important than the facts on the ground, the actual threats, the actual realities of the CDC's trust problem and the handling of really almost any issue. Well, it's funny. It has me thinking of the presentation of data, right, that we were just talking about. And in, in terms of the focus group, right? Right. And I think Chuck Todd is kind of like 
the way opposite end of kind of what we were talking about in that trying to present findings or present data in such a simplified way that obscures any nuance or any type of like deeper kind of conversations or reflection and just assumes things flat out rather than saying like, well, what could it mean if someone doesn't trust Fauci, right? Right. What could be the many causes and possibilities? Right. As opposed to like, well, it's Republicans because they politicized the pandemic, right? Like, Mm, that might not be the only reason, right? And you you lose that opportunity to kind of probe into that finding. And that's where like rich conversations happen, really. And so it's frustrating to see it happen. And then it's like disappointing not to have like the rich conversation we're actually hungry for. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, I do want to note that sometimes data download does a good job of uncovering data that goes against conventional wisdom in the you know political spectrum or the easy answer that everyone is leaning towards so i don't want to say that every time it's all about being you know super simplified me neither i'm not saying this happens every time i think this is an example yes of when it does yes and that's why i wanted to highlight it because it was just it struck me as both of these as crystal clear examples of this issue and that's not to say that that's always how chuck todd and meet the press covers every issue and as you'll notice most of my clips today are from Meet the Press. I think there was a lot worth talking about, some good, some bad, but a lot that was surfaced on the show that is good political conversation or fodder for good conversation. But this is just a very clear example of what I think drives people crazy about some of the coverage. And it has consequences, right? If your audience is only seeing the threat to democracy through the lens that was presented today by Chuck Todd, that's a problem because there is a true threat as jake tapper highlighted out there and as we know from the facts so to say that you know as chuck todd said the rationales may not matter it does matter actually it really does matter and the reason people don't trust the cdc does matter and that reason is not just partisanship so presenting it as that being the answer is uh is not the way to go naomi what was your main topic you wanted to cover today Well, speaking of threats to democracy, I wanted to just play a couple of clips that I found very interesting on Face the Nation. I don't have a huge segment. It was more about just kind of how surprising. There's not a lot of times when I feel like we see a host genuinely surprised by what's coming out of their guest's mouth. Sometimes someone wants to announce something so they know something's coming or they have an idea. In this conversation with Margaret Brennan, that she has with Representative Benny Thompson. He's a Democratic congressman from the state of Mississippi, and he's on the January 6th Select Committee. It felt like she was genuinely surprised by a lot of news that he was making. Very interesting. And, well, it was interesting because I felt like there were so many other things in the show that didn't that didn't kind of supplement what that interview was about. In this first clip, take a listen to Representative Thompson talking about how it seemed as if the Trump administration had a plan to have fake electors in various states already identified for when the votes weren't validated. In terms of Rudy Giuliani, who we just mentioned you subpoenaed, um, there was another news development in terms of public reporting 
Republican electors in at least five states put together uh, essentially fake slates of the electors in states that Joe Biden won. They handed over these slates saying instead that Donald Trump won them. And according to what Mark Short, the former chief of staff to Vice President Mike Pence, uh, he was presented with letters by Rudy Giuliani on behalf of state legislators um, to this to this end, trying to persuade the former vice president not to certify the election. Do you know who was orchestrating this effort? I mean, this is a pretty significant claim. Well, we do know that some of the information we've received from National Archives include uh, proposed plans for doing certain things. If we, uh, after review of those plans, determine uh, specifically individuals who did this, uh, we will make the referral to the Justice Department. Uh, we're not a criminal uh, entity, uh, that's the Department of Justice, uh, but we are concerned that documents have been filed uh, saying they were uh, individuals responsible for conducting and certifying elections, and they're not. Uh, and when you falsify a document, in most instances, that's a criminal act. Mm -hmm. So my impression of this is that there was kind of execution plans, assuming that the electoral votes weren't validated, which is very interesting to then say it was all just a surprise about how badly January 6th went. But kind of some really big news there. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty big. And the fact that also... Chief of Staff Mark Short kind of validated or, you know, confirmed this is, is pretty wild. Yeah. And now they've got the documents. Exactly. Because of the Supreme Court ruling. Yes. That happened this week. Exactly. And they did spend a decent amount of time talking about that at the start of the interview. The second clip that seemed to be also quite a bit of news was the fact that there was a plan in discussion you know, a draft plan to have the Department of Defense seize voting machines in various states. Terrifying. And that there were people who tr tried to create a plan for this. And that people was in the Trump administration? In, in the DOD. Wow. And that this was discussed in the Oval Office. There was also uh, another story, significant, Politico published the text of a draft executive order that had been presented to President Trump in December of 2020 to have the defense secretary seize voting machines in battleground states. And multiple news organizations have now reported this. Um, do you intend to go to the attorney general, Bill Barr, uh, to ask him about this? I mean, how do you follow up on, an, uh, on this kind of allegation and the paperwork to back it up? Well, yes, we do. To be honest with you, we've had conversations with the former attorney general already. Uh, we've talked to Department of Defense individuals. Uh, we are concerned uh, that our military uh, was part of this big lie on promoting uh, that the election was false. So if you are using the military uh, to potentially seize uh, voting machines, even though it's a discussion, uh, the public needs to know. We've never had that before. And so any of these individuals uh, who are participating in trying to stop the election, the duly election of a president, 
Uh, and if we can document it, uh, we will share it with uh, the public. I just want to follow up on something you said. Do you have proof that there was someone inside the United States military working on this premise of actually we seizing have, voting machines? Well, we have information uh, that between the Department of Justice, a plan uh, was put forth uh, to potentially seize voting machines in the country and utilize uh, Department of Defense assets uh, to make that happen. Something beyond this draft executive order. There was actually an operational plan? Well, no, not an operational plan, but just the draft itself okay. is, is reason enough to believe that it was being proposed. Our job is to get to the facts and circumstances of how far did they go. Uh, we do know that a potential uh, person was identified to become the attorney general of the United States who would communicate with certain states uh, that the election uh, on their situation had been fraudulent and not to produce certified documents. Well, we understand that. So we will move forward on that investigation and we will look and see uh, specifically how far that plan went. And then immediately after this, Margaret Brennan asks if they've talked to former Attorney General Barr, and Thompson says yes, which made news today. So just a lot of new details coming out of the January 6th committee, and I just feel like if Margaret Brennan had any idea that some of these things were coming, or how huge that Supreme Court decision to force former President Trump to release those, I think it was like 600 or 700 documents to the committee. Uh, well, to be clear, it was the White House released it. Right. It was the like White the National House. Archives. archives. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. But that the National Archives had to release about like six or 700 documents related to the January 6th insurrection. I mean, I just feel like there could be so many great explainers about that decision, what that means for the January 6th committee, what are new people who are being identified that need, that are being invited to speak to the committee. Like, it could have been such a like this is where we are, right? Yeah, that would have been a much more well-rounded kind of supplement to this interview rather than like that really crappy focus group that I shared as the questionable today. Yeah, this is this is very very compelling, and Representative Thompson seems prepared to answer these questions honestly and pretty fully right now. You know, absolutely, and you know we get that on the Sunday shows. It's a lot of kind of prepped and. That sometimes there aren't a lot of surprises. And so it felt quite refreshing. Yeah, the guests, yeah. And so it it felt like a bummer that like the rest of the show didn't make, wrap around it. Yeah, you know? make the most of it. Exactly. Very, very interesting. So a quick segment for me, Brendan, what are we talking about that you notice on your shows? So I'm talking about Joe Biden. So for the last few weeks... We never talk about that guy. Well, for the last few weeks, I have been pushing back, pushing back, pushing back because the shows keep trying to present all the information that that is political in any nature through the lens of what does this mean for Joe Biden? Blah, blah, blah. It's all we can do is talk about Joe Biden. Anything that happens politically, all we care about is how it affects Joe Biden. It's like, well, how does it affect the rest of the country? How does it affect all the elected officials at the state level? How does it affect, you know, our international standing and regular citizens and blah, 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 blah. There's 
way more political actors than this one man and this one administration. That said, today we're going to focus on that one man and that one administration. And I think it is relevant for the shows to have done so right now because we are now past the one-year inauguration date for Joe Biden. And it is time to assess what that year looked like. There's now a new year ahead. We've got midterms coming up. And it's a great moment to actually, honestly, in a relevant way, look at the world through the lens of Joe Biden. And I thought that Chuck Todd and Meet the Press, as I mentioned earlier, did a pretty good job at framing this as kind of the the focus of their episode. So I've got more Meet the Press clips than anywhere else, but I do have clips from elsewhere. And right at the start, Chuck Todd had a segment where they went out and talked to regular folks about their feelings about this administration and asked some meaningful questions. President Biden is walking a tightrope. In addition to flagging enthusiasm in the base, he faces eroding support among independents. In Atlanta, I sat down with several Biden voters who did not vote Democrat in 2016. Leaning into uh, the argument about uh, elections and election fairness in either direction turns me off. What could Biden do right now to make you feel less like a reluctant Biden supporter? I mean, we got a lot of problems. We got a high inflation. We have supply chain issues. The economy and jobs is the top issue for voters, replacing COVID. Republicans have a 33-point advantage, driven by gains among independents. While job creation is up and the unemployment rate is down, 61% say their family income is falling behind the cost of living. So this is just one small part of it. Obviously, he went and talked to people who are more on the progressive side of things, and that's why he presents it that way, about in addition to flagging enthusiasm in the base. But I thought this was a good example of a really probing, important question to ask folks in these positions, kind of in contrast to your focus group question, which is kind of like, okay, you've told me all the things you don't like about what Biden's doing. Chuck Todd's question is, what could Biden do right now to make you feel less like a reluctant Biden supporter? What could he do to improve his standing in your eyes? And I thought that was really incisive. And that's that's an important question when we're having this type of conversation. Right. It's asking, what are the solutions that you're seeking rather than what are you so upset about? Exactly. And then elsewhere on the episode, Chuck Todd tried to dig in to like what went wrong with the Biden presidency, since it seemed to be going really, really well in the beginning with lots of things passed, lots of enthusiasm for COVID, you know, being past us with the vaccines and then the state of where we are, as Chuck Todd highlighted at the end there. So following that segment, he went straight to an interview with independent senator from Vermont, essentially Democrat, Bernie Sanders. Let me just start. Give, give me your take about why the president and the Democratic Party are in this precarious political situation right now at the start of the second year of the presidency. I, I will tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why. I think the president uh, and the Democratic Congress started off very, very strongly. They looked at the economic crisis that was caused by COVID. We stood up strongly and we passed the American Rescue Plan, which did an enormous amount in revitalizing our economy, put money into the hands of working people, put money into hospitals and into health care, lowered, lowered childhood poverty by 40 percent by putting direct payments to the hands of working class parents all over this country. We were off to a great start. And we also passed along the way the strongest infrastructure bill that has been passed since Dwight D. Eisenhower 
in order to rebuild our crumbling roads and bridges and water systems, expand broadband, and create many, many hundreds of thousands of good-paying jobs. We were off to a great start, and then I will tell you exactly what happened. You, 50 members of the Republican Party decided that they were going to be obstructionists, that they were not going to help us address the crises facing working families, not going to deal with the existential threat of climate, not going to be dealing with the high cost of prescription drugs, the need to expand yeah. Medicare, the need to improve home health care, et cetera, et cetera. And then you had two United States senators joining them, Mr. Manchin and Senator Sinema. And then for five months now, there have been negotiations in behind closed doors trying to get these senators, these two uh, Democratic senators on board. That strategy, in my view, Chuck, has failed. Yeah. It has failed dismally. So Bernie Sanders has, I think, a really good and I think pretty honest assessment of where things went off the rails. He doesn't mention the Delta variant, which I think also affected Biden's standing significantly. He also doesn't mention the mess in Afghanistan, which also affected Biden's standing in the view of the public. But barring those two major events that happened during the summer, I think it was an interesting assessment of where things went off the rails. And he goes on to explain, and I'm not going to have the clip here, but he goes on to kind of like explain what he means by these backroom negotiations and says, look, enough with these backroom negotiations behind closed doors where no one knows what's going on. And you're trying to convince these two senators. He says, look, we just got to debate it in the Senate in public view, vote on it, and then see where we are. And then if we have to change course, we change course. But we don't continue these endless backroom deals where everyone thinks something's going to happen and then it doesn't happen. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things to know about the framing of this. The things that are missing that you mentioned, Brendan, are, of course, very telling. Some of it was in Biden's control, some of it not. And this isn't the first time I've noticed this, but Bernie Sanders often will make sure to throw Republicans under the bus. Yes. Before kind of also acknowledging the two Democrats who are not voting and are essentially obstructing the president's agenda. And I don't know, like, what's the point? <laughs> of which? The Republicans? The Republicans. Like, like throw, why throw Republicans under the bus? Bernie Sanders multiple times has noted that Republicans will not vote for anything, that they're obstinate, uh -huh. right? And then he will acknowledge Manchin and Cinema, and that they are essentially not voting with their party. Right. I don't understand what's the point of acknowledging Republicans that they're not voting for anything, that they're not being bipartisan, because nobody, I don't know, like... <laughs> Who was expecting that? Right. I, yes. I don't understand. Like, <laughs> you have a slim majority. Everyone assumed what you were going to accomplish was just going to be with your slim. Whatever you could accomplish was just going to be with your slim majority. I don't. I don't know many people, anybody who was just like, oh, I, I, I'm curious as to what they're able to do with Republicans. Like, I don't know. Do people really feel that way, or did they have those hopes and dreams? I never did. So. Well, I always just feel like, okay, yes, yes, you need your ma like mandatory. 12 seconds to bash on Republicans, but it doesn't like do anything for I me. I think what he's trying to remind people is these Republicans don't like we did not succeed in passing some of this legislation, but don't go and vote Republicans in and expect them to do it because they're against it. Just FYI. I don't think that's his motivation. I think he feels like he has to 
bash on Republicans before you can bash on Democrats. But what undermines his argument about Republicans, you know, refusing to support things is, is that Democrats never voted for Trump things. <laughs> and also Republicans did. I mean, they support this. The infrastructure bill was a bipartisan bill. There were Republican votes on that bill. And you can't like say that that didn't happen. It did happen. And then there was this other piece of news from Biden's press conference this week that Biden, when asked directly whether he reached out to Republicans on this voting rights stuff, he said no, he didn't. He didn't call Mitt Romney, as Mitt Romney noted last week on the Sunday shows. So anyway, that's Bernie Sanders' perspective. But it's also important to look at a Republican perspective on where Biden went wrong. And I actually thought... On the panel of Meet the Press, there was some thoughtful dialogue from Carlos Curbelo, former Republican congressman. All right, Carlos, do you agree that this is a message problem that he has, not a substance problem? I think Joe Biden's biggest challenge is that he's not being himself. Joe Biden has a record over 50 years of being a pragmatist, a consensus builder, someone who worked with Republicans, worked with Democrats. When he was vice president, uh, President Obama would sent him to negotiate with Mitch McConnell. They pulled him back sometimes because he was too willing uh, mm -hmm. to negotiate. And all of a sudden, he became the face of the most progressive, ambitious policy that the Democratic Party has tried to advance in a generation. The same Joe Biden who ran in the primaries as the mainstream or moderate candidate, the same Joe Biden who told independents, and we see that big drop, that he was going to help heal this country, that he was going to be the president of Republicans, Democrats, and independents. I think a lot of these voters have uh, found him to be a partisan. And that was a surprise because he was supposed to be different than Donald Trump. Donald Trump was divisive. Yeah. Joe Biden was supposed to bring us together and to heal us. Yeah. So on the whole, I think those characterizations are correct, particularly in how voters saw Joe Biden. Now, you can go back and people have gone back and said, well, no, wait, wait, Joe Biden was talking about a lot of these issues, these progressive issues that he's trying to push forward or tried to push forward in the Build Back Better plan. They were, look, they were on our website or look, you know, he mentioned them here or there. But the voters weren't reading the website, right? They were, hold on, they were seeing Joe Biden up there with a lot of other candidates who seemed to be a lot more progressive than he was. Even Democratic candidates, uh, I should say, even Democratic voters thought that Joe Biden was not very progressive and were surprised when his presidency was seem to be more progressive than it actually was. So I think this is actually a really good take on how voters and the public at large is seeing Joe Biden anew after his first year in office. And it's, it is different from what they expected from the campaign. It's interesting because Corbello's comments here are also the exact opposite of what we've seen from other people where they've said that Biden does not act executive enough, that he acts too much like a senator and having wanting to negotiate and wanting to kind of he's not leading enough and kind of trying to be more collaborative than he needs to be as president and so i don't know i don't know if i totally buy this whole he's not being himself like maybe he's not being a president but that doesn't necessarily mean he's not being himself maybe being himself is part of the problem right yeah i guess the being himself yeah it's more like probably he should have said, I think Joe Biden's biggest challenge is that he's not being what people thought he was. Yeah, perhaps. Because we don't know what he is, he himself. We, we don't know him. We've That's true. We've never met the man. 
So that's kind of looking back on the year as a whole, but there's also kind of more recent history that was assessed, and I wanted to point out some interesting commentary on the panel of Fox News Sunday. And I actually found the panel of Fox News Sunday pretty good this week. I thought Bream did a pretty good job as the host and moderator of that panel. In particular, take a listen to this this point that she makes, and I almost it's it's almost the um, the question that Bream asks that stood out to me more than the answer. But here's the answer. She's speaking with Julie Pace, executive editor of the Associated Press. You'll hear the question from Shannon Bream and then the answer from Julie Pace. But Julie, there hasn't been a pivot or sort of a reset. In fact, Democrats spent a lot of political capital pushing these election overhaul bills that they knew weren't going to pass, trying to nuke the filibuster, knew that wasn't going to happen. I mean, why do that, especially at a week that has not been good for the White House the last few days, losing at the Supreme Court on their OSHA mandate? I mean, why swing for the fences like this uh, when Democrats knew none of that could succeed? Well, I think this is the big question for the White House when Mo talks about the White House having to pivot to results. That's certainly true. You know, any president wants to be able to go out to the American people and show what they've actually done in office. The problem for Biden is that he keeps running into the same opposition, and some of that is coming from within his own party. Yes, he has a majority, but it is extremely narrow, and he does not have uh, the full uh, Democratic majority in the Senate on his side to pass many of his priorities. So how is he going to get through that? What is what is the mechanism for him to get results? So, again, the question stood out to me more than the answer, which is, if Biden wants to do a pivot, then why was his pivot, his reset on the failure of BBB, Build Back Better, over five months to do the exact same thing, except do it in a two-week period rather than a five-month period? You know, expect these two senators to actually vote with you, and then they don't. And then you fall on your face again. I'm surprised Julie Pace's answer wasn't, Well, he had to, as we heard on other Sunday shows, he had to look like he was at least trying on voting rights because the Biden administration seemed to frustrate a lot of voting rights advocates in the summer when that seemed to be in the springtime when all those Republican legislators were passing these restrictive laws and the Biden administration was not interested in doing anything then. So maybe there will be another pivot. I don't know. I mean, there's definitely going to be a pivot, right? They have to get ready for the midterms and kind of show progress and try to pass whatever they can. Like, I'm not, I'm sure there's going to be some kind of pivot. It's just how much do people believe, I think, is questionable. And further kind of like looking into what the Biden administration is doing now and what they could be doing better on Meet the Press, Chuck Todd also spoke with Democratic Representative Alyssa Slatkin. She is a representative from a Trump voting district. She is from the state of Michigan, and I think she did a good job highlighting what the Biden administration was not focused on. Well, look, people don't wake up in my district like real political people. They're not, you know, here in Washington. They're probably, you know, not watching this show right now. They're waking up and they're talking about the price of groceries, the price of gas. They're talking about crime, right, And, and concerns about security. They're talking about whether their kids are going to be able to stay in school. Um, those are the things that are that people are talking about. And I think that's, in my mind, what the White House should be laser focused on. And, and I get it. There's a there's a big coalition. We got a lot of people that are interested in a lot of different things. But in my mind, like, where's the war room on the cost of living? Right. Where's the task force on inflation? Where are the where's the energy around that? Because that's what everyone is talking about when I sit down with them. It's kind of really funny because 
mean, Brendan and I don't live in that district, but we look at the Sunday shows clearly every Sunday. And we are we do have conversations about the economy. Yes. We're trying to buy a car. So we're talking a lot oh, about our personal conversations. Yeah. Right. Like yes. she's saying, like, people don't talk about this and they don't. Talk. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> we do. <laughs> but OK, we don't live. We're not her constituents. So she doesn't have to worry about us. But I do think that there's something to be said around the immediate needs of people and having those be kind of front and center in terms of priorities. I don't know. I thought the Build Back Better was trying to address a lot of that. Child care tax credits to help people pay for child care, pay for groceries, pay <laughs> like there's there's this idea that the Biden administration doesn't care about people's problems, but the way they were trying to fix those problems was not how Mansion and Cinema wanted to fix those problems. So their plan failed. Like, I don't understand the whole like Biden doesn't care about keeping, you know, helping parents with the rising costs of, you know, groceries or what or, or, or gas. It's like families were getting three hundred dollars per child and that child care tax credit expired. Right. Because of Congress. Like, it's just there's like this idea that like the Biden administration hasn't done certain things. They've done they have done some things. I would say the Democrats haven't seized on that momentum to do more and instead have gone in reverse. <laughs> and so like maybe the Biden administration's really bad at messaging. Yeah. Okay. But like, why are you blaming the Biden administration when it's your colleagues in the Senate who have really failed you? Well, I think the point that really resonated with me was that the White House doesn't seem to be laser focused on these issues. You know, inflation wasn't an issue when they started talking about the Build Back Better plan, you know, or it was a very small issue. It wasn't the... the people were saying it was an issue. They didn't acknowledge it as an issue. And I don't think most people in America felt like it was a huge issue in the summertime. I don't think that's true, but okay, keep going with your examples. Clearly, you can agree that inflation is a much bigger topic of conversation now than it was in the summertime, correct? More people are talking about it. Some people have been talking about it all year long, correct? So it seemed like, I think, the Biden administration had this plan for Build Back Better. It was pre-existing. It pre-existed the inflation conversation. It was Build Back Better existed when the Biden administration was still saying, look, this is, what did they say about temporary inflation? Or what was the word that they used? Transitory. transitory. They said it was transitory inflation. And they kept saying that for a really long time while they were fighting for this Build Back Better thing with their backroom negotiations, as Bernie Sanders describes it. And then, as we saw, inflation became a huge issue, and the Biden administration said, well, this is going to solve inflation. This is our best way to do it. And we heard detailed questioning from, I remember Chuck Todd in, in particular saying, yeah, but how is Build Back Better going to solve inflation in the short term? It might help long term, but it doesn't help short term. And so also, the entire political press was extremely critical about this idea that this is the solution for inflation. But all the while, the Biden administration did not start up, as Alyssa Slatkin says, these task forces on fighting inflation or these, you know, war rooms on the cost of living or seem to be doing anything specifically targeted at solving these problems, even if in truth, as you say, Naomi, the Build Back Better plan could have helped on those things. 
in view of the public, in view of the political press, it seemed like the administration was not reacting to the number one issues that people were focused on. And to this day, as we saw last week, we're not reacting to those issues. Sure. I mean, I think there were Fed experts who said transitory is still possibly 18 months. And the way the Biden administration was saying transitory was just like, wait it out a month or two. And I think there's a lot of poor messaging from the Biden administration, bad neck, like, man, some news organizations are real bad about explaining the economy. And and then it completely slip, slipped through their, like, their open grass pants. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I go back to my whole point. Like, there were households getting $300 per child to help with the cost of child, like uh, uh, of their families, right? And mm-hmm. I don't understand how you mess up that that is like a tangible, immediate solution for so many people who really need it that is means tested because that goes down as your income goes up for that household. And still, the Democrats let that expire. Like, it, it's, it's like truly baffling <laughs> just how crappy of a job they did. So to round things out, to end things here, I think it's important to at least address a little bit of one of the most recent things that Biden did that raised eyebrows, and that was his comment related to Ukraine. As we've talked about a little bit here, as you've probably read, Russia seems extremely interested in invading Ukraine and bringing Ukraine back into its sphere of influence, as has been described by by many out there. And the Biden administration and the U.S. government is pushing back and European Union is pushing back and trying to say, don't do that, don't do that, really don't do that. But President Biden made a bit of a gaffe this last week. Here is a conversation on the panel of this week, again, hosted by Martha Raddatz, where that is discussed with David Sanger, New York Times White House and National Security Correspondent. What, what are you hearing and, and what effect did... President Biden's comments about minor incursion have? Well, I think uh, to take your last uh, question first, Martha, his statement at the press conference that the U.S. and its allies might not put uh, full sanctions in for a minor incursion led to such a reaction in Ukraine and in Europe that it's actually hardened the government's position, the U.S. government's position now. And you've heard that in recent days, as Secretary Blinken has said that if even one uh, Russian soldier goes over the border in an aggressive way, that could trigger uh, all of this. But I think what that gets at is the larger question of what do we think the Russians are doing here? So that's a good summary by David Sanger about what exactly Biden said and what the reaction has been. And I thought that some of the further conversations, again, on the panel, I thought the panels were pretty good this week, on the panel of Fox News Sunday was pretty interesting. This is a comment from Mark Thiessen, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, about exactly what 
quote unquote, Biden doesn't seem to understand. Look, we, what Biden doesn't seem to understand is weakness is provocative. When you when you project weakness in the world, your adversaries are more likely to test your resolve. And the fact is, Putin thinks that Biden is bluffing. He remembers that in 2014, when he invaded and annexed Crimea, the Obama Biden administration refused to put serious sanctions on uh, on Russia or impose any real cost. Uh, it called the sanctions cost him about one percent of GDP, and he was willing to pay one percent of GDP for Crimea. The question now is, are we going to impose the kind of costs on him that would deter him, that would be too high uh, for military action? To do that, you have to sanction oil and natural gas, uh, which are the only exports that Russia cares about, and put massive sanctions on, on Russian banks. Europeans depend on, on Russia for 40 percent of the natural gas. They're not eager to do that. And Biden has not laid out the specific sanctions that he would impose. He needs to show Putin that the costs will be enormous uh, and specific. He needs to name the banks uh, that he's going to sanction. He needs to make clear what the sanctions on, on Russian energy exports are going to be and show him that the costs are going to be too high for him to bear. This is so much more detailed than what I saw on my shows, where on Face the Nation and State of the Union, there were questions posed to Secretary Blinken asking for an explanation as to why the Biden administration was not closer in line with Ukraine's kind of plea at this point that the sanctions should happen right away rather than waiting until there's further escalation. Mm-hmm. And they kind of kept it at that level rather than kind of digging deep and talking about kind of here where it's like, well, what would those sanctions look like? Why does that matter? Why does it matter that Germany doesn't seem po- like keen on moving forward with harsher right. sanctions? Like everyone's kind of talking broadly rather than saying like, actually, this is what needs to happen, we think, for Putin to blink. Yes. Yeah, I thought this point by Mark Thiessen was very cogent and helped explain a lot and went back in time to talk about what kind of lessons Putin learned from the Obama-Biden administration back then when he did something very similar and didn't seem to be uh, faced with a lot of costs on it. But at the same time, you kind of understand the bind that the White House and the U.S. government is in right now because European allies don't want to don't want to draw such a such a hard line because it's going to hurt them too right as he's as Thiessen says here Europeans depend on 40 percent of their natural gas from Russia so it will cost Europe as well as costing Russia to impose these sanctions which is why Biden probably said oh you know if there's if there's a minor incursion maybe we won't you know hit them as hard as as we would if there was a major one which when you're Ukraine, like, what the F is a minor incursion? Right. But I think that the broader point by Thiessen is to deter Putin, you have to be crystal clear. And that was the point as well by former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who I heard on Fox News Sunday, too, which was you have to be crystal clear about what the sanctions are and what the results of invasion will be. Otherwise, Putin's going to assume that it's not that bad. So it's a real diplomatic test for the Biden administration, but not one that is being helped by Biden's gaffes here, right? Because as we just heard from Sanger, because Biden made that gaffe, the administration has had to kind of harden its position to say that any incursion now will be met with maximum sanctions. But again, not defining what what that maximum means. Yeah, it's interesting because I think 
you know, we've seen Secretary Blinken on a lot the last few weeks, kind of talking not about a lot because like the updates every week are kind of very small, but very important. Like things are not getting better or things are not great or things, you know, we're working on this. So we're talking about to our European allies about why. And I think they have been much, the Biden administration has been much more proactive in trying to control the messaging. On the other hand, I think it's still such in vague terms that it's easy for someone to kind of rip up their explanations pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just a huge, huge test for the administration. And it's a really tough one, clearly, because they their administration isn't acting alone. It's acting with Europe and Europe can't really decide what it wants and is willing to do. But lots of issues facing the Biden administration and Joe Biden himself. So it will be very interesting to watch as time progresses to see how Biden pivots or doesn't pivot. Remember how everyone was always waiting for the Trump pivot? Remember that? And it just like never ever seemed to happen, but people kept hoping for the pivot. We'll see if Biden is able to do that. So interesting kind of take on our show today, kind of Congress slash the January 6th committee actually like doing stuff and like wow that is fascinating and then another segment on is the biden administration doing enough or how do people kind of see his progress well not not another for us because we haven't we've kind of resisted that narrative for a long time right right but i'm saying it's interesting to have that juxtaposition between the two Mm -hmm. i'd be curious to see how things progress and the next few weeks, the next few months, in particular to everything related to the January 6th commission yeah. or committee and Ukraine, I think those are going to be quickly evolving and seeing who is really able to kind of finally control the messaging and what people actually understand about it. Absolutely. So what would you say is the dialogue challenge this week? I don't know. I think these are kind of opaque, huge stories. And I think it's easy to get lost in them, kind of dismiss them. Like, I don't know what's the point of paying attention to them. And so I'd be curious as to, you know, either the January 6th or the Ukraine story, what news organizations are helping you kind of wrap your head around it, yeah. right? Like how, who is doing good explainers? Who is kind of explaining the stakeholders, explaining tension well, explaining updates well, because they're so big that like sometimes the tiny, it's kind of like when you get those like New York Times alerts and you're like, yeah, but what the F does this mean? Like, right. oh, uh, uh, okay, this is, I don't know, 22 words on a story that is like giant, <laughs> you know? And this is like step like negative one, and then we're going to get to zero, and then we're going to get to one. You know what I mean? Like it's like very early in the story sometimes. Right, exactly. And so I'd encourage you to kind of think about what is most helpful for you in trying to understand these evolving stories and, and hearing from people you really respect about how they're approaching it. Absolutely. And I do want to credit some of the shows this week for asking their guests like why should the regular like listener or 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 american care about this ukraine story how is this going to affect them and i think those sorts of questions can really help people focus in on this actually being relevant rather than tuning it out absolutely that's fair so if you want to focus in on any of the topics that we were talking about today you're welcome to do so you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can follow me at Beastidal on Twitter. You can follow me at Twitter at Soto Naomi underscore. And you can always follow the show at Polylogcast. 
Thanks, everyone. We will talk with you next week. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.